Everybody got through their first few days of school, right? Those of you that are parents or teachers or uh, in school. Um, my wife and I have three girls, 10th grade, 7th grade, 4th grade. We got them all off to school without a hitch. Everything went pretty well. Uh, but a lot of the first half of our week was preparing for that, right? And um, I was talking with Maddie, our 9-year-old. If you don't know Maddie, she's a sweet little girl. She has cerebral palsy, so she's in a wheelchair, and she uses her wheelchair to get around school, and, and she's a fourth grader. And um, I was talking to her about school, and we just gone to the Meet the Teacher event. So she got to meet her teacher and see her classroom and find out where her desk is and got back to the house, and it was just me and her. And I said, Maddie, are you excited? School starts tomorrow. You're a big fourth grader. Can you believe it, fourth grade? And she goes, I'm a little nervous, Daddy. And then I got a little nervous. Isn't that how that works, parents? Your kids' nerve, nerves jump onto you? Or, um, and so I get nervous, and I said, Maddie, what are you so nervous about? And she said, oh, I'm nervous about the boys bullying me. And then I went from nervous to angry. <laughs> and I said to her, what do you mean? She goes, yeah, I'm just nervous about the boys bullying me. And I said, well, if the boys bully you, I'll come to school, and I will fight those boys. <laughs> And I was only a little bit joking. Now, before you get too alarmed, she actually, I don't think, gets bullied at all. She's a celebrity in her school. But she was worried about it. And so I said, Maddie, I'll come fight those boys for you. And she looked at me and she goes, Daddy, you're not a kid. You're a human. <laughs> Which both are true. I am not a kid and I am a human. But most of our week was spent preparing our girls, right, getting their outfits ready, getting their supplies, learning their schedules, the bus schedule, and preparing and preparing. And so much of life sometimes feels like we're just preparing for stuff, preparing for what's coming. But how do we prepare for the worst parts of life, especially when we don't know that they're coming or we don't see them coming? How do we prepare for struggle? How do we prepare for suffering? And how do we prepare for sorrow? We know they're coming. How do we prepare? What unique inner resources do Christians have that help them through those seasons? That's what 1 Peter is all about, answering that question. What do Christians have within them because of the grace and goodness of God that will prepare them and sustain them through seasons and circumstances and challenges that are struggles or suffering or sorrow? Well, Peter, in the opening verses of First Peter identifies himself and his recipients. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, which means that he is a man, as an apostle, fully authorized to speak on Christ's behalf and to act as his representative. If you're familiar with the Gospels and the story of Jesus, if you know Jesus' story, then you probably know Peter. Because wherever Jesus was, Peter was two steps behind him saying something foolish half the time. Peter followed Jesus. He failed Jesus in a very tremendous way, but he also found restoration in Jesus. And here, most biblical scholars believe that Peter's writing these words that we're going to look at this morning about 30 to 40 years after all of that. It's been 30 to 40 years. Peter's in Rome, and he's writing a letter to Christians that are scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus, but he identifies the recipients of his letter using an interesting phrase, elect exiles. Elect exiles. Two words that almost sound like an oxymoron. Chosen but scattered. Selected but rejected. And actually, the phrase elect exiles describes Christians for all of time. Because on one hand, we are elect, which means we are chosen by God and we are loved by God. 
But still we are exiles, which means despite the fact that we are chosen by God and loved by God, we live in a world that neither chooses God nor loves God. Do you ever feel that tension? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, at present, right now, Christians are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all of the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And so Christians live with both this certain confidence about a future hope and a future home, but also a constant longing for that hope and for that home. I would call it the in-between time. And Peter is writing this letter to people who are feeling the full weight of being in between. There's a home waiting for us. We're not there yet. There's a hope before us. We don't have all of it yet. We're in the in-between. So Peter writes these words. In fact, we're only going to look mostly at verses 3, 4, and 5 this morning. But if you read verses 6 through 12, it gives you the context that tells us that these people are struggling. They are suffering. They're going through trials and tribulations. And actually, history tells us that the people that Peter is writing these words to, although they are suffering at this time, their suffering is going to get much, much worse under the leadership of other Roman rulers. So let's go to the text this morning uh, to, to look at this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5 say this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In these three short verses, we're going to see three things that we have received from God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that prepare Christians for seasons of struggle, suffering, and sorrow. And the first one is this, we have received a living hope. A living hope. Verse 3 said, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a mouthful. It's a lot, but it's powerful. So let's break it down. First, the phrase, according to his great mercy. Now, the word grace is different than the word mercy. God's grace approaches and sees sinners as guilty, and it's his grace that speaks to our guilt. It's God's grace that speaks to our legal guilt, that we are unrighteous in the eyes of the just judge God. But mercy is a little different. Whereas grace speaks to our guilt, mercy actually sees our misery. It doesn't just see our guilt, it sees the suffering of our lives as a result of our sin. And so when God did this according to his great mercy, what we're seeing is that this is a response of the divine heart to the brokenness and misery in our lives because of sin. God sees us as we are, pitiable, pathetic, helpless to get ourselves out of the condition into which sin has plunged us. And so according to his great mercy that he sees us in our misery and he moves towards us in our misery, the next phrase is, he has caused us to be born again. Now, this makes it very clear that God is the protagonist in the story of salvation. You did not save yourself. I did not save myself. God is the initiator in the work of salvation. Another way of saying this is that God acts for our good before we would ever act for our own good. He acts for our good on our behalf to save us before we could ever respond to what he's done. He's caused us to be. And then he's caused us to be born again to what? These two words, a living hope. Now, 
to get the full impact of these two words, living hope, what I want to do this morning is I want to take them apart and talk about them separately, and then we'll put them back together and talk about them together. Let's take them apart first. The word living, the adjective. I think it's an interesting choice of adjectives. I think if, if I was thinking about the hope that we have in Jesus, I might think of a, a sure hope, a great hope, an eternal hope, a wonderful hope, a beautiful hope. But Peter calls it a living hope. And this word living, when something or someone is living, it's to be valued, it's to be nurtured, and it's to be related to. And this is also true of the hope that we have in Jesus. We need to value the hope. We need to nurture the hope. That's why we're here together this morning. And we need to relate to this hope. Not just talk about it or observe it as a scientist would observe some sort of species, but that we would actually have a relationship with this hope, this living hope. And also this word living as an adjective, it means that this hope is not static or stagnant, but that it is growing and increasing. That the hope that we have is not like just staying the same for all of eternity, but it's going to grow and increase and get greater. It's productive, it's fruitful, it's fertile. That's what the adjective living means. And I hope that this is giving you some encouragement this morning because sometimes we feel like we're surrounded by death and dying and decay. And yet in the midst of that world, there is a living Hope. We have a living hope. I know how many of you, I mean, I'm a pastor, so I pay probably more attention to this than some of you do, but I'm always interested in surveys of Americans about their religious affiliation, their church engagement, and their worldview. And if you follow these at all, you know the news in America is not good. That church attendance, church engagement, religious affiliation, uh, and specifically worldviews are um, much different than they were even 20 years ago certainly much more than they were 50 years ago. And the general consensus is America is increasingly becoming a post-Christian nation, a post-Christian society, biblically illiterate, unaware of the worldview of Christians and the Bible. And, I mean, everywhere you look, it's bad news. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and, and give up hope? No, we remind ourselves we have a living hope. Jesus is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The kingdom of God is moving forward. Some of the parables that Jesus told us that sometimes it moves forward like as slowly as, as wheat growing in the ground. You don't see it, and it's happening at night, but it's happening. And this past Thursday night, I had the opportunity to sit in a missions banquet with the National World Missions Director of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God is a fellowship of churches, which our church is a part of. And so the Assemblies of God is this movement of churches, this fellowship of churches. And this individual, his name was John Easter, he is the director of U.S. Global Missions. And it's incredible to hear about what's happening in the Assemblies of God. You know, our movement as a fellowship is, is 108 years old, 108 years old. Now, it sounds old, right? Except when you think, of, if you know the history of other denominations, we're like a toddler, the Assemblies of God, compared to other movements. 108 years old. Here, here's current statistics on what God is doing just through the Assemblies of God. 108 years old. There are over 50, there are almost 56 million Assemblies of God believers around the world. There are almost 370,000 Assemblies of God churches. There are 2,680 Assemblies of God missionaries who are represented in 153 out of the 192 or 194, it's kind of debated, possible countries in our world today. And here's what really got me. In, 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 through Assemblies of God, churches, missionaries, and ministries, 
Every 54 seconds, someone puts their faith in Jesus. Every 54 seconds, a new believer. That means when we're here for our approximately 70-minute service, that's 70 people somewhere in this world through the ministry of Assemblies of God, they've made a decision to respond to the grace of God and place their hope in him. And every 81 minutes, a new church is planted, a new Assemblies of God. Now, this is just the Assemblies of God, and we're just a sliver of a big pie. The Assemblies of God is one of two fellowships in America that are still growing, actually. Most denominations and fellowships have, have plateaued or, or decreasing. The AG is one of two that continue to grow. Now, this is not an Assemblies of God chest-thumping thing at all, because it's not about the Assemblies of God. It's about the living God. It's about the hope that we have in Jesus, our living hope. But my point in sharing those statistics with you this morning is that it so encouraged my heart Thursday night because sometimes you look around and you go, does anyone love Jesus? <laughs> does anyone serve Jesus? Is anyone standing for truth? Is anyone holding on? And I thought of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 as he was going up against Ahab and Jezebel, and he, and, and he said, I'm the only one, God. He was despairing. He was depressed. He, was, he wanted to die. He said, God, it's only me. And God, in 1 Kings 19, 18, says, no, I've kept 7,000 people's hearts. There's 7,000 Israelites who are still faithful to me, who have not bowed their knee to Baal or kissed that God with their mouth. That's what God says. Listen, we're not without hope, and our hope is living. The word hope, by the way, to get to that, is we, don't, we use the word hope like we use the word wish. We kind of use them as they're, like they're synonymous. So I might say, I hope we have good weather today, right? I hope the Bills beat the Jets tomorrow, right? Um, you know, you might be thinking, I hope Pastor David's sermon is short and interesting. But we all have hopes, but in each of those cases, we have no con control over them or any level of certainty about them. It's more like I wish. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not a wish. There is a certainty. The word hope here that Peter is using means an eager, confident expectation. This is not just like, oh, God, I wish and I hope, you know, living hope, fingers crossed. It's not that at all. It's a hope that is built on a certain truth that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and he did what the Bible says that he did. It's the, the word hope in the Bible is such a word of confidence that when prophets often prophesy about the future, they actually talk about futuristic events using past tense verbs. That's how sure they are in God's faithfulness. This isn't wishing, guessing, or predicting. This is a certainty. So now living hope, let's put them together. And when you put them together, you know what it does? It points to Jesus and to the new life that we have in Jesus, that our hope is in a living God. We do not put our hope in a set of doctrine. We do not put our hope in rules and regulations. We do not put our hope in, in, in religion. We put our hope in a man who is still living because he was resurrected from the dead on the third day. It points to Jesus and the new life that we have in Jesus. And that's why Peter says, you are born again into this new living hope. It's a reference back to when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus and John, and he says to him, you must be born again. I know that phrase born again has been co-opted over the years, and it's sort of used now to describe uh, crazy people. Like It's like, you know, there used to be a bad thing. You would say to somebody, I'm a Christian. Oh, but you're not one of those born again Christians, right? <laughs> and what I would say is there's no other kind. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not born again because born again is the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts and bringing us into new life in Christ. This is what the living hope is. So how does this help us tomorrow? When your dreams around you seem like they're dying, you still have something living. It's your hope. And when nothing around you seems sure or certain, you still have the most certain thing before you. It's your hope. 
In Jesus, we have living hope. The second thing in this passage, we have an imperishable inheritance. Verse 4, Peter says, An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. In the Old Testament, the word inheritance is used mostly to describe the promised land and Israel's place in the promised land. But here in the New Testament, Peter uses the word inheritance to point ahead to an even greater inheritance than the earthly promised land, but a heavenly promised land reserved in heaven by God for the people of God. And Peter cannot figure out how to describe this inheritance, so he basically tells us what it's not like. Have you ever had to do that before? You're trying to explain what something tastes like, but you don't know how to explain it, so you start instead saying, well, it doesn't taste like that, and it doesn't taste like that. Or you're trying to experience uh, you know, a, a place that you went. It's like this, but it's not like this. And this is what Peter's doing. When he talks about the inheritance, he says it's not these three things. It's not like this. And Peter uses these three words not to be redundant because each of them has a unique meaning. So let's look at these three words. He says they're imperishable. Your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. First off, imperishable, pretty obvious, but it simply means not able to be destroyed. It will never perish. No matter how long we wait, this inheritance that we have as children of God, and of course, inheritance is something that a father or a mother leaves and gives to their children out of relationship. So we are the sons and daughters of God. So we have legal claim as those adopted into God's family to his inheritance. And this inheritance is imperishable, which means no matter how long we wait for it, it will still be there. Some of you are going to inherit things from your family someday, and you're going to wish you hadn't inherited them because they're so broken down and they're so, they're more work than they're worth it. And that's not what's happening here. What is waiting for us will always be there in its current form, imperishable. Everything around us is dying, but our final dwelling place is pure life, pure life. And in that place of pure life, death will no longer exist. That's what it means, imperishable. It also means undefiled, which means not polluted. There's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. Um, one of the books I read this week said this, our inheritance is undefiled, which means it's without sin. And from our vantage point, it's hard to even imagine a world undefiled by sin. Just try it for a minute. Think of our society, our country, our world, untouched by sin. How different would that be? How many lives would be different? How many Super Bowls would the Bills have won by now, right? Undefiled by sin. So he goes on to say, imagine a world without locks or alarms. Cities where keys would be unnecessary because theft is obsolete. A world where every woman sleeps without fear and every man is honorable. Every child is cherished. No jails, no need for so much of what we have to, to deal with the sin in our society. No sin, none at all. When speaking of the next world, Peter says that it will be without stain or blemish, which means it will be without sin. It will not be morally compromised or sinfully polluted. It will never be defiled. It will be like any, unlike anything we've ever known. And if it sounds good to you that there's a place waiting for us without sin, here's the best part. You will be there without sin also. Can you imagine a you without sin, without regret, without insecurities, without pride, without lust, without anger, you without any of that stuff? That's what's before is in our undefiled inheritance not just a perfect place, but perfect people. And the last word here that Peter uses is unfading, which means, unlike everything else in this world, our inheritance is not subject to fading or decay. When I was in college, I had a roommate, 
uh, named John, and he was really into decorating. He loved decorating our room, which was great because I had no interest in it. And uh, he was a guy, this is how into it he was. At Christmas time, he would wrap empty boxes just to have the appearance of gifts under our Christmas tree. And our, I don't even wrap real gifts. <laughs> Thank God for gift bags and tissue paper, right? But he was wrapping boxes, and so he was so into it. And one fall, uh, he, he decorated our, our room for fall, and he bought a big pumpkin, put it right on one of our dressers and surrounded it with leaves and different things. And we, we left it up, and then we actually forgot about it, and we left for winter break. I'm glad to know some of you maybe have done this also. Uh, so we, we came back. We opened the door to our dorm, and then the smell hit us. We stared at each other like, what did you do in there? Like, what did you leave in there? Whose body is in there? And so we walk in, and we quickly realize it's got to be the pumpkin. It's the only thing in here. And so I, it looked fine, though. It still looked fine. So I was like, I'm just going to get it out of here. So I go and I grab the stem of the pumpkin and I go to lift it up and I just pulled so out, like, like a knife through butter. I just pulled it right out and the pumpkin just went. <laughs> pure decay. Everything in this world does that eventually. Have you noticed? Everything breaks down, everything decays, everything fades. The Bible says it this way, all the glory of this world will fade away. But there is an inheritance that is unfading. When our own bodies, long since expired, are reunited with Christ on that final day, we will be made incorruptible forevermore, restored, new, and complete. This is the inheritance that awaits all who are in Christ. Everything we know in this life eventually dies, is defiled, or listen, loses its capacity to captivate and enthrall us. Each of these terms that Peter uses here, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, each of these terms, on the other hand, reassures us that the hope reserved for us in heaven, our inheritance, it will not disappoint you, it will not fail you in any way. On that day when you are restored and made new, standing in the presence of Jesus, seeing the new heavens and the new earth, there will not be one ounce of you that will say it wasn't worth it. There will not be one thought that crosses your mind that doesn't say, this has not failed me in any way. In fact, as we sang this morning, it's exceeded everything I could think or even imagine. That's the inheritance we have. Now, how does this truth help us tomorrow? A couple things. First, when we believe this and understand that there's an imperishable inheritance waiting for those who belong to Jesus, then the things of this world, they lose their beauty and appeal. Now, I want to be clear. It doesn't mean that we don't still recognize the beauty of the creation and the appeal of things that God gifts us with. What it means is, is that we don't place our deepest hopes in them, and we don't lose our deepest joy when they begin to fade or decay or fail us, as everything does. But the other way in which this truth helps us is this. Listen, we lose so much on this side of eternity we lose so much, right? Um, as we get older, we lose things. We lose our ability to do things physically that we used to do. We lose our ability to recover as quickly as we used to. We, when we start to lose things like our hearing and our sight and our hair and our strength and our height, and we lose so much, and then we start to lose people that we love and, and hopes and dreams, and all life long, we're losing things on this side of eternity. But what Peter's words mean here, if they're true, is this. That Christians won't ultimately lose anything that was meant to be theirs. We will not lose anything, ultimately, that was meant to be ours. 
because we have an imperishable inheritance that is more than we could ask, think, or imagine. And the last thing in this text, I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony to join me, a salvation ready to be revealed. A salvation ready to be revealed. This might be my favorite one, actually. A couple months ago, my youngest daughter, Maddie, I mentioned earlier, she, she has CP, so she does an adaptive dance class. And those of you that are connected with my wife or I on social media, you might have seen this video of her doing her, her dance. And she was up there on this stage and did this beautiful dance, and there wasn't a dry eye in the room. It was just wonderful. And, uh, but what some of you don't know, if you haven't heard the whole story, is that right before the dance, Maddie said she wasn't going to dance. She got a little scared, a little nervous, and so one of the dance instructors ran out to Aaron and I and said, Maddie's saying she's not going out, so Aaron had to go backstage. So I went to the front row to film, not even knowing if Maddie would be behind the curtain when the curtain opened, just hoping that she had got it together and wanted to dance. And so I'm waiting there for that, that anticipation for the reveal. That's where we are in the redemptive history of God. We're just waiting for the reveal. Now, on one hand, you might be thinking, hold on, what do you mean salvation ready to be revealed? Isn't the whole Bible about the salvation of God? I mean, isn't the cross about salvation? Isn't my changed life evidence of salvation? Why are we waiting on it? Well, let me explain. When we talk about salvation, we're talking about three tenses of salvation. Past tense of salvation is we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. But future tense, the salvation that is ready to be revealed, someday we will be saved from the very presence of sin, have been saved from the power or from the penalty, are being saved from the power will be saved from the presence. And so somebody ever asked you, are you saved? The answer you might want to give them is, I have been, I am, and I will be. I have been, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And someday God's going to pull back the curtain on history. And the beauty of his salvation that we see in part now, but on that day we will see in whole, will be revealed. And God's keeping that for us, and he's keeping you for it. Right in the verse that you are being guarded by the power of God. It's the Holy Spirit that seals you for the day of redemption that seals me. It's not my strength or my determination. It's God's work on our behalf. So the best is yet to come. It's sure to come. A living hope, an imperishable inheritance, a salvation ready to be revealed. How is this all available to us? And as I close, let me just bring us to the first two verses of this chapter that we didn't read earlier. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... Verse 2, this is how this is available to you and me. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, number one. Number two, the sanctification of the Spirit. And number three, obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Why is all of this available to us? This living hope, this imperishable inheritance, a salvation ready to be revealed. How is it and why is it available to us? Because of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God ordained us. He, his foreknowledge, which means he set his affection on us before we set our affection on him. The sanctification of the Holy Spirit, which is both instantaneous at salvation, where we are made righteous in God's eyes, but also progressive for the rest of our lives, where we learn to live out that truth of who we are in Christ. But then also obedience to Jesus Christ, which means there's a work for us to do. We submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We submit ourselves to, to church leadership. We submit ourselves to spiritual disciplines. We submit ourselves to the love of community and the mission of God. 
And because of those three things, the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and obedience to Jesus Christ, these things are ours. What's our response? Well, our response is what verse 3 said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what it means, Christians. Even in the season of sorrow, suffering, and struggle, we still have the inner resources to lift our voices and say, blessed be his name. Blessed be the name. As we lose things, as things die around us, as we struggle, we can still say, blessed be the name of the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's given us this living hope an imperishable inheritance and there is a salvation ready to be revealed. Let's pray together this morning.